would be willing to bet that if you grew up with the story of Cain and Abel, you probably haven't thought about it for a little while. It seems easy to tuck away the moral of the story many of us were exposed to early in life and live in some confidence that we are living by it. At least, I'm going to assume that most of us have not murdered a sibling, even by accident. And so the story is often relegated to a little morality tale about the way we ended up separated. And we can shake our heads in dismay about the human condition and how the pattern was set in motion so long ago in a moment of impulsive rage. We might throw up our hands at the thought of the millennia of violence that have plagued humanity without really seeing ourselves in the story. Likewise, when we think about nonviolence, most of us who align ourselves with the struggle for civil rights in the United States, who've lived much of our lives in peacetime, can take the notion of nonviolence for granted. I haven't punched anyone lately. I think I can say I'm living up to the literal standard of nonviolence. How about you? But the story, as Sandy Sasso retells it and Michael so beautifully shared this morning, offers us a glimpse into the promise of what we are meant for, what the vision of nonviolence really is, and reminds us that our work is not just to refrain from the killing or the punching or the shooting, but to live this whole vision of abundance. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing? Wouldn't it be heaven on earth? Could it even be called the kingdom of God? For a world to be so full of harmony that even the different tastes and textures of fruits could become one? Or apples and plum melons, for heaven's sake? Can you imagine? We do a lot of singing and card singing as we card signing and sending as we reach the end of the year that extol the virtues of peace and goodwill. But we never really go that far, do we? It's hard to imagine outside of storybook land, what it might be like to have our differences all come together, to dwell in that good and pleasant place where all is bliss and we know war no more. It's a lot easier to imagine the extension of what's in our own human hearts most of the time to one degree or another. Fear of not being enough, the certainty that someone else is getting a better deal is in the favor of God or someone else that we want to impress. We need to prove ourselves worthy, loved, valuable, because mostly we worry that we're not. Isn't that what so much of the trouble is always about? But you know and I know, in our heart of hearts, that there is enough love. There has always been enough goodness, such an abundance of goodness in this universe that it's flowed from the source of all life into each of us. It passes freely from one of us to another all the time, if we but let it. The world is saturated with it, with beauty, with grace, with inexplicable acts of kindness, and hearts that explode with love against all reason. God, the holy, the source of all, planted it in us and gave us the power to choose that love, to cultivate it, to grow it. But there's still this messy business of how to get along when the way of your goodness and the way of my goodness are not the same. How to live with the grandness of the mystery 
of the universe, in the midst of all of the troubles of this world, in the midst of all the doubts we have, doubts of ourselves, doubts of our God, doubts of each other. Right now, right here on planet Earth and in the United States, we have a lot of doubts about each other. The New York Times recently reported of an alarming increase in calls to violence and belief that violence will be necessary to achieve political victory. Social media teams with disputes over so-called cancel culture. Extended families are being fractured by vaccine decisions and political crisis. We're turning away all the time from curiosity about each other's complexity, reducing each other to labels. Cain and Abel's story reminds us that when we feel jealousy, anger, insecurity, resentment, rage, we're not the first people to ever feel it. We come from a long line of people who have suffered these feelings. And the story tells us how profoundly careful we need to be with our reactions when we have them. An argument around a campfire can lead to a tragic death. Had there been more people around someone Cain could have talked with about his anger and Abel, or his anger at Abel, someone could have lent him some perspective. Someone could have reminded him of the love he had for Abel that sat alongside that anger and jealousy. Things could have turned out a whole lot differently. The activist, singer-songwriter Joan Baez famously said that nonviolence is simply organized love. What if instead of choosing, or having like, to choose between love and the more complicated, more violent feelings that we had, we had opportunities to organize ourselves around the promise of love and remind ourselves of that promise in community? What if our faith communities were the center for that organizing? What if we could practice taking the risk and feeling the reward of acting our love with one another, not by turning away from conflict, but from trusting in one another's depth and wisdom enough to engage it? Could we share our feelings truthfully? Could we invite others to see the harm they might be causing unaware? Could we interrupt destructive patterns? Could we be truthful about the ways that we've hurt each other, intentionally and unintentionally, to arrive at a deeper way of being together and moving forward? We owe it to each other in community to keep each other's feet on the ground when we might be tempted to go off into a rage. We owe it to each other to offer insight to each other's hurting hearts before they're consumed with vengeance. The world is not the same after Abel is killed. The earth turns cold and hard. Where flowers had once been, only thorns and thistles grew. And when autumn came, the trees wept leaves. So it is every time we harbor hard feelings, when we let our reaction to another person diminish who we are, and forget the gift and blessing that belongs to each of us as children of a loving creation. The work of nonviolence, then, isn't just holding back 
from doing the violent act, but of refusing to buy into a vision of ourselves as separate from the love that holds us and binds us to one another. It's a commitment to interrupting patterns of harm, whether they have to do with physical violence or not, and having the trust in one another to hear our truths. Civil rights organizers knew that this took practice, and they trained the folks who were at marches and sit-ins and protests to hold fast to their values and not to return violence when provoked. The practice wasn't about being passive or about giving in, but about organizing themselves and living out the vision of a human family that can disagree without destroying each other. Nonviolence is a commitment to engaging conflict with a kind of hope, trust, and yes, love that can bring about healing and justice. So what if we too, in the midst of the fracture and alienation of this time, organized ourselves with our sights on that mythical land where many kinds of fruit can grow from the same tree, where all beings are at peace and everyone has enough? Given how far we are from seemingly further every day, it's easy to despair at what it might take to get there. It could be easy, even easier to laugh off the vision of some ridiculous Pollyanna nonsense. And yet, those of us who are lucky enough to be in the communities where we know each other and are known, in church communities like this one, we get the chance to practice together up close even as we might struggle with those big, intractable problems of global despair. Our connection is deeper than our anger, deeper than our sense of separation. In the words of Adrian Rich, what would it mean to live in a city whose people were changing each other's despair into hope? You yourself must change it. What would it feel like to know your country was changing? You, yourself, must change it. Though your life felt arduous, new and unmapped and strange, what would it mean to stand on the first page of the end of despair? What would it mean to stand on the first page of the end of if we let ourselves return to that place deep inside us, that place where goodness is planted and can flourish, the place where we are most in touch with the holy, the place where our hopes and our deepest capacity for love burn like constant embers, if we let ourselves return to that place, perhaps we can restore rightly, ready to let go of those hurts that limit our love and keep us locked in a pit where hearts are hard and the future is bleak. Friends, let us organize ourselves in accordance with that love we seek, the love we know, the love we share. Let us practice the challenge of acting according to the demands that love places on us, to stay curious, to name our truths, to consider conflict a gift that can bring us to insight, and to embrace each other fully on that journey.